You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Really glad to have Mike and Marika in town from Europe right now. Uh, you know, they've, they lead a really great ministry over in Europe. They've done a lot of recording and pioneered a lot of things um, and done just a really great work over there. And so it's great to have them in town visiting for a little bit. If you'd please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. We're going to be continuing our study. For the past several weeks, really several months actually, we've been studying through the book of Exodus in our study, which is called Be Set Free. And we are quickly coming to the end of this study. Next week is going to be our last, last installment, our last study in the book of Exodus in this series, Be Set Free. And then after that, two Sundays from now, is going to be Easter. And you probably heard about this already, but we're going to be uh, doing two services on Easter. We're excited about that. Our reason for doing that, we just want to create space for more people to be able to come and celebrate and worship Jesus with us. And so we want to create space so that you can invite friends and family. And, and you know, the Saturday before Easter, we're doing a big outreach in the park. We're very excited about that. And we ask you to please join with us in praying that God uses that outreach, draws a lot of people, and more than just bringing a lot of people out to have a good time, we do want that too but that there would be inroads for us to share with them the hope that we have. And really, the true thing we are celebrating on Easter, which is that Jesus has risen, and because of that, we have hope which shines beyond this life and even beyond death in the grave. And so we want to be able to share that with people. We want our community to hear that message, and we would love for a lot of those people to also be able to join us on Sunday morning. I know that uh, many of you are volunteering in that outreach, and we look forward to that. It's a great way that we can serve our community and serve the Lord. So on Easter Sunday, we're going to be having two services, 9 and 10.30. The thing to know, again, is that uh, we only have children's ministry at the second service. The first service is going to be family service. So if you like to have your kids with you, I know we do like to have our kids with us in service on Easter. It's a little bit shorter service anyway. So you can decide which service is better for you. So 9 and 10.30 on Easter. It's going to be a great time of celebrating Jesus' resurrection, the hope that we have. Uh, after Easter, we're going, to be getting, uh, we're going to be beginning our new series in which we will be studying the parables of Jesus. So I'm really looking forward to that. So that will be coming up in three weeks from now. So uh, some of you might know this. I just got back in town a few days ago. I was in Eastern Europe visiting some of the ministries that Whitefields partners with in Hungary and in Ukraine and visiting some of the missionaries that we as a church support. I hope that you know that, that we are actively involved in supporting different ministries around the world, and we support missionaries. You can read about them on our website if you didn't know that. But I spent a few days in Hungary visiting a church in Eger, which is the church that Rosemary and I planted before we moved here. And the majority of my time, though, I spent in Ukraine, and I was mostly in Kiev. I taught at a pastors and leaders conference in Kiev for uh, Calvary Chapel. Um, They have pastors and leaders from Moldova, Ukraine, and Belarus who attend this conference. It was just a really great time. And after that, I got to speak at their church in Kiev. It's a really great work that God's doing there. And I got to speak at an evangelical seminary in Kiev that I got connected to last year. And this is the largest evangelical seminary in Eastern Europe, just doing fabulous work, training up people and preparing them for ministry and a great vision. So some of you might remember some of our missionaries who've been through here in the past you know, year or so. You might remember George Markey, Ben Morrison, We have information about them at the back table, but they send their greetings to you. They always uh, told me that they very much enjoy coming to visit the church and and corresponding with some of you who keep in touch with them, and so uh, lots of people send their greetings. 
And one of the projects that we were a part of, that we've been a part of over this last about year and a half is helping a church in Svitlovots, Ukraine, which is about four hours south of Kiev, helping them purchase and, and uh, refurbish a building so that they have a, a building for their church. And uh, so I was able to bring some money to them on this trip to help them do that. You know, they're able to do the whole thing. You know, just prices are different over there. They're able to do this whole thing for $60,000. So we haven't fronted that much money, but we've been uh, giving the, some of the uh, money that they need for it. We've donated that out of our mission fund, which you have given to. And, you know, I think that's interesting, and you're probably thinking the same thing. You know, we don't, we don't even have our own building yet. What are we doing building churches in Ukraine? Well, well, precisely that is one of the reasons why we meet in a location like this, because here's what it does. Having such low overhead allows us to spend money on the things that we're really passionate about. Because we're not really passionate about properties and buildings. You know what we're really passionate about is the gospel and people and spreading the good news of Jesus and seeing communities and lives transformed. And so meeting here, we're able to spend more of our money on the things that we're truly passionate about. Now, all that to say, um, you know, you can read a, a lot about the stuff we're doing with missions. We have a missions newsletter. It comes out twice a year. We have some copies still from our last edition, our spring edition, which is back on the back table. I encourage you to pick that up and find out more about what we're doing in, uh, in these different places. Um, but another thing is you can also read about our plans for our future because eventually we do want to get in our own building and have our own space. So you can read, we have a vision packet which tells you a little bit about where we see ourselves going over the next couple of years, where we believe God's leading us and, and the steps that we need to take to get there, as well as our, our strategic plans. So those are all available to you on the back table. I just want to remind you of that and encourage you to check that out when you uh, get the chance after service. So if you'd please open with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34, we'll read our text for today, and then we will study it. Our text begins in verse 1 of chapter 34. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were written on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and, no, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze upon the mountain. And so Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning. And he went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this revelation of who you are, of your name, of your character, and Lord, we pray that as we study this, truly, Lord, we would come to know you in a greater way. And as we do that, that we would be transformed as we gaze upon, as we look upon your glory, Lord, that it would have that effect in our lives of changing us and transforming us and impacting us and making us more like you. So, Lord, we ask that you give us receptive hearts this morning to your word, and we ask that you'd speak to us, and we, we pray that, Lord, the things that we hear will be put into practice in our lives for your glory and for our good. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question. What do Catholic nuns, Hindu priests, ISIS terrorists, atheists, and people 
who go to church on Sunday all have in common? The answer is that all these people do the things they do because of what they believe about God. And what that means is that what you believe about God is incredibly important. In fact, uh, the 20th century writer A.W. Tozer went as far as to say this stunning claim. He said this, What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God, that is the most important thing about you. Now you think about this now, really? Is that the most important thing about you? I mean, the most important thing? I mean, more important than your gender or your ethnicity? Is it more important than where you grew up or or where you went to school or what your occupation is? He would say yes. And actually, I think he's right because here's the thing. Whatever we worship, we become like what we worship. You will become like whatever you worship. So for example, the way you think about God will shape the way that you think and that will shape the way that you live. If you think of God as angry and hateful, then chances are that you will become angry and hateful. If on the other hand, you think of God as loving and gracious and forgiving, it's a good chance that you too will become the trajectory of where you're going. You will become more and more loving and forgiving and gracious. So who God is is very important and it has major implications for who you are and who you will become. But here's the problem. We usually end up believing in a God who looks a lot like us, shares our opinions, dislikes the people we dislike, shares our views on politics, really doesn't disagree with us on anything. Uh, Mark Twain once put it this way. He said, God created man in his own image and man, because he was a gentleman, returned the favor. And other words, created God in his own image. I read about a seminary professor in Chicago, and he said that his approach was this. Every year he would teach a class on Jesus, and he would begin the class by giving the students two surveys. In the one survey, uh, he would begin by asking a set of questions about the student. For example, what are their likes, what are their dislikes, what are their views and beliefs and opinions? And the second survey was a set of questions about Jesus. And what Jesus was like and, you know, what were his likes and dislikes and opinions and how he thought. And this professor said that 90% of the time, you can see where I'm going, the answers were exactly the same. And that's very telling, isn't it? In other words, most of these people presumed that Jesus was just like them. And one of the great themes of the Bible throughout is this, that most of us, all of us really, have assumptions about God that are incorrect or false, at least partly, And here's the other thing, though. So we all have assumptions about God. Many of those assumptions are false, but here's the good news. It is possible to learn what God is really like. But in order to do so, you can't base your view on God, uh, your view of God on what you think that God should be like, right? In order to make sure that you're dealing with the real God and not a figment of your imagination or a creation of your own ideas, you have to come to the source, You have to go directly to the source, to God himself, and ask him to tell you who he is. Now, the danger with that, of course, for us is that we might find that the the real God isn't, you know, has certain things about him that we wouldn't have chosen that aren't our preference. Maybe we aren't even sure if we like it. But at least we know we're dealing with the real God and not a figment of our imagination. And that brings us to Exodus chapter 34, where we find Moses on top of Mount Sinai. The title of today's message is Unfading Glory, and there are two things that I'd like you to see that I think we need to see in this section. The first one is who God is, and the second is how seeing God changes us. So who God is, and then how seeing God changes us. So let's begin by talking about who God is. 
Here's the setting. The people of Israel are in the desert right now. They are en route from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. Now, God is the one who has done everything, right? God is the one who heard their cries in Egypt. God is the one who saved them out of slavery and is bringing them into the promised land. Moses, his role, he is the mediator between God and the people of Israel. And Moses has a unique relationship with God. We're told in chapter 33, verse 11, that God would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. In chapter 33... Moses goes and he's talking to God. We, you might notice that we skipped over chapter 33. That's because we're actually going to go back and study chapter 3 next week. But what happens in chapter 33 is that there's a conversation that goes on between God and Moses in which God, or in which, um, God asked Moses, oh, I'm sorry, Moses asked God to go with the Israelites every step of the way all the way to the promised land. And at one point in that conversation, Moses makes a bold request. He says something that's incredible, really. He says in in chapter 33, verse 18, he says, now, please let me see your glory, right? God says, okay, fine, I'll go with you. And Moses says, all right, well, since I, you know, I won this one argument, maybe I'll, I'll push my luck and see how far I can go with this. And he says, now, there's one other thing I want. Would you let me see your glory? And what Moses is really saying is that he wants to see God in person. He, he's he doesn't just want to have head knowledge about God. He wants to have an experience of God. He wants to see God in person. This phrase, the glory of the Lord, what it speaks of, it refers to the physical manifestation of God's presence and God's beauty in a way that can be seen. But God tells Moses, he says, no, that would be impossible. He says, because it would be so powerful that if you were to see it, it would kill you. And God says, no one can see me and live. But he says, you know what, Moses, I will do this for you. He says, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So he tells Moses there in chapter 33, there's a rock that has a big crack in it, a cleft of a rock, you could call it. And he tells him, I want you to go hide yourself in the cleft of the rock. And God says, I will cover you so that you will not be destroyed by my glory when it passes by. I'll cause all of my goodness, I love how he puts it that way, I'll cause all of my goodness to pass before you. And then he says, at the very end, I will remove my hand so that you can see the tail end, the, the afterglow of my glory. And so the next morning, that's where we are now in chapter 34, verse 1. The next morning, Moses gets up. He gets up early. He climbs to the top of Mount Sinai, and he goes and he hides in this cleft of the rock, this cut out you know, crack in this rock. He hides himself in there. And we read in chapter 34, starting in verse 5, that the glory and the presence of the Lord descended upon the mountain in a cloud, and it says that it stood there with Moses. And the Lord proclaimed his name. And in response to this, It says in verse 8 that Moses bowed his head and worshipped. That was his immediate response. It was a powerful, powerful experience. But even more than just a powerful experience for Moses, for us, this is the defining moment in all of history because this is one of the very few places, in fact, maybe the very first place in the entire Bible where God describes himself. He describes his character and God says, this is what I am am like. 
This is God's self-disclosure statement. This is God's press release to the world of who he is and what he's all about. And because of that, this is actually the most quoted and alluded to passage in the Bible by the Bible. There are actually over 200 references back to this passage over and over again throughout the Bible. Allusions to this passage, partial quotations of this passage, Over and over, the biblical writers come back to this passage again and again. It's quoted by the prophets and by the New Testament. It's prayed by the psalmist. It's sung in the psalms. And so what I'd like to do is go through this with you because if you want to know who God is, this is ground zero for a theology of God, who God is, what God is about. This is the place to come because it's where God reveals his name, his character, And so what I'd like to do, again, go through this phrase by phrase and consider what each part means and what the implications are for us. So let's begin by looking at this. The first thing is God says, I will proclaim my name. And what that tells us is this. God has a name. And just so you know, it's not God. It's uh, Yahweh. We've actually studied about this as we've gone through Exodus over and over. This has popped up. In the ancient world, a person's name had much more meaning than what our names tend to have today. In the ancient world... Your name was kind of like a one or two word statement of the truest thing about you. In other words, it spoke of your essential character. And that's why it was not uncommon, and we see this in the Bible several times, over the course of a person's life, for their name to change, for them to get a new name because the old name no longer fit who they had become. We see several instances of this in the Bible, especially as people encountered God and they were changed in the process, that they received a new name and a new identity. See, Jacob, his name meant swindler, like dishonest person. And then God comes into his life and wrestles, he wrestles with God and God gives him a new name and says, from now on, you will no longer be called Jacob, swindler. Now, from now on, you will be called Israel, which means led by God, governed by God. See this with Jesus. There's this man who follows him, his name is Simon. And Simon, by the way, in Hebrew, refers to shifting sands, like on the sea, how the wind comes and blows sand around. And Jesus says, no longer will you be a shifty character, but from now on I will change you. You will become Peter, the rock, right? And so the character changed, the name changed. And one of the promises of God actually for us, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is that if you will come to him and, and humble yourself before him and give your life to him, that he will give you a new name. He'll give you a new identity and a new destiny. So God begins by proclaiming his name over Moses. We read it, the Lord, the Lord. Of course, wherever you see the Lord in all caps, in the Old Testament especially, this is a place where the name of God originally appeared, Yahweh, Yahweh. Remember that, for for those of you who don't remember or who maybe weren't here when we explained this, the reason why it says the Lord in all caps and it doesn't say Yahweh is because the Hebrew scribes considered the name of God, Yahweh, to be so personal and so intimate that they would not write it. They were afraid of even accidentally being guilty of taking the Lord's name in vain. So they wouldn't write it. Instead, they wrote Adonai. Adonai meaning Lord or Master. And and then uh, they would mark it in such a way that it was clear that originally this had been the name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh comes from the Hebrew word for to be. And, and he is, the insinuation is that he is the God who is, the God who was, the God who always will be. He is eternal. He is supreme. He is never changing. And here's why, though, it is so significant that God has a name, right? Because here's what it means. It means that God is not some kind of impersonal energy force. 
It means that God is not just an idea or a set of truths, but he is a relational being. He's a relational being, and and as a relational being, he wants to relate, and he wants to relate to people like you and me. He knows you, and he wants to be known by you. And there's a difference, really, between knowing a lot of stuff about God and knowing God intimately and personally. You see, God isn't just a doctrine that you learn about or study. He is a being who wants to have an actual relationship with you. You know, I'd just like to stop even right there and just ask you this question. Do you have a relationship with God? Do you have a relationship with God? I think there are a lot of people who... Especially, maybe you've grown up in church, maybe you've grown up in a Christian family, you've come to church, grew up going to Sunday school, you know all the stuff, right? Or maybe you're a person, you've read a lot of books, and you love reading, maybe you even love reading theology books, but the question is this, it's one thing to know God, but do you, or it's one thing to know about God, but do you know Him, really? Do you have a relationship with Him? Now, I'll just tell you on my personal level, for me, that question was a turning point in my life. You know, I, I grew up and I went to a, a Lutheran school growing up, and it was a great school, and it was full of great people, and they taught me great things. And I went through confirmation at that school, and, and I learned a lot of really great things about God and about the Bible that really, even to this day, lay a foundation for, for my faith. But it was a few years after I had left that school when a, a friend of mine who was a Christian, we were talking, and she opened up the Bible and she showed me this passage that I had never seen before. I had never read it before. And it was in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And there in Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, this incredible and almost surprising, almost you know, disturbing thing. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now what that passage is saying is that there are a lot of people in the world who know all the right stuff. They know all the right doctrine. And they even, they even do religious things but they don't actually have a relationship with God, which is what it's all about anyway. And none of that, without a relationship with God, none of those other things actually matter. No matter how much you know about God, no matter how much religious activity you do, apart from a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. Jesus said this, he said, this is eternal life, to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. You know, as this friend of mine asked me this question, she asked me, well, she asked me, is that you? Are you that person in that story that Jesus is talking about who has all kinds of head knowledge about God and who even does religious things, but you don't have a relationship with God? And I knew immediately as we were talking that she was right, that that absolutely was me, that I I was that person who knew a lot of stuff about God, but I didn't have a relationship with God. And for many people, maybe even some of those for you here today. And I think especially about, you know, our youth and our kids as they grow up in church. There, there comes a point where you need to take that crucial step. There's that step you need to take from knowing things about God to pursuing God and worshiping God, not just as an idea or a set of truths, but as a person, as a being, as a relational being who knows you and has done everything to save you and set you free. So God has a name. He's not just an idea. He's not just a force. 
He's a relational being who wants a relationship with you and invites you into that. The second thing we read here, as God proclaims his character, merciful and gracious. You know, it's interesting that when God begins to tell about who he is and what he's like, he doesn't start and he doesn't list the things which, which I probably would have listed if I were him, right? He doesn't talk about his power or his sovereignty. He doesn't talk about how he is all-knowing. No, here's what he talks about. The first thing God wants us to know about him is that he is merciful and he's gracious. That word merciful can be translated also compassionate. It's a feeling word, actually. It refers to feelings. It describes the feeling that a mother has for her children. The word gracious, on the other hand, is not a feeling word. It's an action word. The word gracious doesn't refer to how you feel. It refers to how you act. These two words link up together to show us what God is like. He feels compassion and he acts with grace. Of course, grace is undeserved favor. It's when you give someone a gift, not because they've earned it or deserved it, but because you simply want to out of the goodness of your heart because it gives you joy to do so. And that's how God acts towards us. Slow to anger, that's the next thing we read. Slow to anger. It's interesting, in Hebrew, this phrase actually means long of nostrils. Because you can think about it when you get upset, you know, your nostrils get all puffed up out to the side, at least mine do. Um, But when you're long of nostrils, that means that you don't have a short temper. You're not flying off the handle at the drop of a hat. People don't have to walk on eggshells around you and be careful not to set you off because of your quick and explosive temper. Maybe you know people, or, or, or maybe you are a person who has that kind of temper, or maybe there's the other kind of anger, which is also a way of being quick to anger, by the way. It's not explosive anger, but it's that kind of anger that manifests itself in snide remarks and mean jokes and cynical comments and hurtful things. God is slow to anger. He's extremely patient. The, the word, old English word for this is incredibly Uh, descriptive. It says that he is long-suffering. But I want you to notice this too. He is slow, but he is slow to anger nonetheless. To anger. What that means is that although God is patient and, and incredibly controlled, there are things that make God angry, sometimes make him very angry. In fact, the Bible talks about this a lot. The Bible talks about how God gets angry. The Bible even says that he hates things. God hates violence, he hates injustice, he hates wrongdoing, and he is, not only does he hate those things, but he is angry at people who do those things. Now, someone might say, wait a second, hey, how does that mesh with the idea of a God of love, right? Well, precisely this, it's because he is a God of love, that is precisely why he hates evil. You know, when people say things like, I can never, I could never believe in a God of wrath, well, I would come back and say, well, yes, you can. You absolutely can. Every time you read about children being abused, every time you read about children being given into prostitution, every time you hear or know about rape, murder, genocide, anytime you see these things in the world and you say to yourself, that's wrong. That's not the way it's supposed to be. It is terrible. It's wrong. You're absolutely right. It is wrong. And I want you to remember this, God is a personal being, not an impersonal force, and and that means that he has feelings. And not only does he feel sorrow over sin, but he actually feels anger over injustice and evil in the world carried out against people whom he created and whom he deeply loves and cares about. 
John Stott defined the wrath of God in this way. He says, God's wrath is God's steady, unrelenting, uncompromising antagonism against evil in all its forms and manifestations. You know, usually when we get angry, it's because someone offended us, or maybe they hurt our ego, wounded our ego. But God's anger is like that of a parent, that of a parent who's angry at the drug dealer who keeps trying to sell drugs to their kids. It's the anger over, of a parent over their, at their own child who keeps running out into the street and, and risking his life. You know, it's the anger which is the result of love and concern. In fact, throughout the Bible, most of the writers, this is what's interesting, most of the, Bible, most of the writers throughout the Bible, especially, well, in, in both Old and New Testaments, really, they're upset about God's anger, not because God gets angry, but because they don't feel that God is angry enough. Did you ever notice that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament? The writers are upset because they see injustice around them, and they are frustrated that God is being so patient God, why are you being so patient? Why don't you bring judgment? When will it come? They want to see injustice and wrongdoing put to to death forever. In our day, we generally tend to have the opposite problem with God's anger in our society. We have a problem even imagining that God could ever be angry. Most people tend to think that a God of wrath is incompatible or somehow contradictory to a God of love. But the truth is this, that God's wrath is the natural result of God's love. It flows out of it. It flows out of God's love in a world where there is sin and there is evil. And if you see someone you love in pain, it should move you emotionally. And if you see someone hurting someone you love, it should make you upset and should move you to do something about it. And so God is slow to anger. Next, we see that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The word translated steadfast love is an amazing word in Hebrew, but it's a word that we don't have any equivalent for in English. It's the word hesed. Hesed. And here's what one Hebrew scholar defines it as. He says the word hesed refers to all of the positive attributes of God at the same time. It's often trans- it's hard to translate. That's why many of our translations will translate different ways as unfailing love, steadfast love, unending loyalty, covenant loyalty. The word for faithfulness, on the other hand, it literally means truth. That's what it means, faithfulness. It means truth. It can be translated as integrity, trustworthiness. In other words, this is a God you can count on. He will never let you down, unlike a lot of us, Right? Our tendency, especially in our culture, right, when, when life gets hard, many of us tend to bail. We say, no, I think I'm out of here, right? Like when things are no longer easy or when they're no longer fun and when things get difficult, we leave. We leave our jobs. We leave our cities. We leave our churches. We leave our friendships. We leave our marriages. We'll just cut off ties and move on. But God's not like that. He's steadfast in his love, has said, and he is faithful. And here's the scope of God's love and faithfulness. Notice it says, he keeps it to the thousands. The thousands, by the way, it's not, that number isn't meant to just be understood as a, as a number that you would count. That's a Hebrew way of saying it's limitless. The next one we see in the last one, it says, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means clearing the guilty. These three words, iniquity, transgression, and sin, this covers the entire scope of human depravity, right? So iniquity is the general term which refers to any kind of wrongdoing, right? This, could, this covers it all from, uh, you know, going five miles over the speed limit to, um, 
I don't know, murdering the president, right? It's all in there. The next one is transgression. Transgression is a legal term. It refers to violation. Transgression is when you know exactly what the law is, but you break it anyway. And the next word is sin. Sin is an interesting word, really, because in this sense that it's used, sin refers to missing the mark. And the picture it gives us is actually of an archer who's shooting and trying to hit the bullseye, but missing. In other words, the, the intention is there to do the right thing, but yet sometimes you mess up. And so all three of these together, they cover the fact that God forgives sin of all shapes and sizes. But there's also a counterpoint to the forgiving nature of God. It's interesting. It says that he will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, God won't just turn a blind eye to sin or wrongdoing. In fact, he can't because to do so would be to go against his very nature as a just God. In fact, here's the other thing I want you to understand. God is just and his justice is a good thing. The justice of God is part of the good news of the gospel. And here's why. Because God's goal ultimately is to eradicate evil. To eradicate evil. Imagine this. Imagine what a world would be like with no evil. No cruel dictators. No corrupt politicians. No terrorism. No fear. No abuse. No racism. No exploitation. No pain. No mental illness. No depression. No betrayal. No evil at all. How many of you would want to live in a world like that? I do. I want to live in that kind of world. And here's the promise throughout the Bible is that one day this kind of world will indeed exist because God is going to come and judge the world and he will eradicate sin once and for all. He will make all of the crooked lines straight and set back the things to the way they were meant to be, the way that you know in your heart that they should be. Now that sounds wonderful, but also creates a problem, doesn't it? It creates a problem because, well, I want to live in a world without sin, but the problem is that sin is so deeply embedded and rooted inside of me And the question becomes, well, if God eradicates sin, well, then he'll have to eradicate me. How can God eradicate sin without eradicating me? And and it also seems a bit contradictory here because God says, in the same breath, I forgive sin and iniquity and transgression all across the board. But in the very same breath, he says, but I by no means clear the guilty. Those two things don't even fit together. How can God overlook sin and then say, I will never overlook sin? They don't. They don't equate. And to make things even more complicated, there's this line at the end that a lot of people get hung up on, right? It says, God will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that if something bad is happening in your life, that it's because God is punishing you for something that your parents or even your grandparents or great-grandparents did? Or, you know, if you cheat on your taxes, is God going to punish little Jimmy who hasn't even been born yet later on down the line? No, that's, that's not what it's saying. Here's, uh, here's how I know that that's not what it's saying, by the way, because later on Moses himself will say that that's not how it works. Furthermore, the prophet Ezekiel goes on a long time talking about this where he says that's not how it works. He says, you keep saying this, that that's, he says, you know, that, that the fathers ate sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, he's saying that, oh, well, the reason bad things are happening to us is because we're cursed because something happened to, because our fathers and grandfathers did something bad. And he says, no, don't ever say that again. He says, every person will, will deal with their own sin before God. In other words, God won't punish kids for their parents' sins. But the question is, so then what is this verse saying? Well, it's saying several things, actually. We'll go through them quickly. One thing it's telling us is this, is that a parent's sins have consequences 
for their children and even for generations to come. And what that means, mom and dad, what you do doesn't just affect you. You're not in a vacuum. If you've got kids, then remember the consequences for what you do are going to affect them and even for multiple generations. And here's the other thing. Sin tends to run in families. And I'm not talking about generational curses or anything like that. It's just a fact that for better or for worse, children tend to, not always, but they tend to, Uh, follow in their parents' footsteps. And so here's what I want to encourage you. If you have kids, no matter how young or how old you are right now, you need to think about yourself. Think of yourself as a patriarch or a matriarch, right? Consider the legacy that you want to leave to your kids and to your kids' kids and to their kids. And I encourage you to establish a legacy of faith and following Jesus and make it easy for them to follow in your footsteps as you follow Jesus rather than creating a legacy of dysfunction and sin for them to have to try to break out of later on. But the other explanation of this verse is this, that because God is just, he will continue to deal with sin generation after generation because he's absolutely committed to eradicating sin. But I want you to notice this too. This is also very interesting. God's judgment, even in the text, it says it is limited to the third or fourth generation. But notice in contrast to that, his loving faithfulness, he maintains to the thousands. In other words, this is a contrast. God's judgment lasts for a time, but his love and faithfulness last forever. Now I want to zoom out a little bit as we look at our second point. We're going to zoom out. Here's the big picture of what's going on in Exodus chapter 34. God has entered into a covenant relationship with his people Israel. We've read about that in previous chapters. That he would be their God and they would be his people. The closest thing that this resembles, that we can compare this to, is a marriage. But only a few weeks into this marital covenant, so to say, the people turn their back on God and and reject him and, and chase after other gods. And what's happening here in chapter 34 now, though, is that God is giving the people a second chance because that's who he is. He's the God of the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance and the fifth and the sixth and so on. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to the thousands. Maybe that's something that you need to hear today and be encouraged in. Maybe you're in need of a fresh start and a new chance. I want you to know that it's available because of God's mercy and his grace. And so God here, he's preparing to renew the covenant here in chapter 34. And he's having Moses prepare two new stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on them because you might remember that Moses broke the previous ones as a symbol of how the people had broken the covenant. So this brings us to the second point, and this is getting near the end. He says, uh, here's our second point, how seeing God changes us. At the end of this chapter, chapter 34, here's what happens. Moses is up on the mountain. He's receiving this from God. He goes down to the people, and having been with God, his face is now glowing and shining. And we read in verse 30 that some of the people were scared by this, and so Moses covered his face with a veil or a cloth so that the people wouldn't be afraid to come near him. In other words, as Moses beheld the glory of God, he was changed by it. However, it wasn't a lasting change. We read that after a few hours, maybe a few days, it would fade away and then Moses would go up and he would kind of recharge the batteries and then come back down and he'd be shining again. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul the Apostle tells us about the fading glory symbolized here in Exodus 34. And here's what Paul concludes about that. He says, as great and as glorious as the covenant that God had with Israel was, it was merely a faint shadow of, of the glory that God offers to us in Jesus. 
Because in Jesus, God's glory is manifested in a way that we can look upon it with unveiled eyes. We can see who God is. We can see him in all of his beauty and all of his majesty. Because in Jesus, all of the mysteries, all of the unresolved tensions of the story come together. In other words, Jesus is the answer to all the riddles. And, and, and here's, as we do that, Paul says, as we gaze upon the glory of God in the face of Jesus, he says we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You know, this passage in Exodus, we, we come up with a couple of things that just seem to not add up. I mentioned a few of them to you already. For example, here's this question of whether the covenant relationship with God, is it conditional or is it unconditional? Because there are places where it sure does seem like God is saying, a relationship with me is conditional. I'm a holy God. I will have nothing to do with sin. If you want to be accepted by me, if you want to have a relationship with me, then here are the things you need to do. And you need to obey me, and you need to do it perfectly. And if you don't, then there can be no relationship. And then on the other hand, it seems like God is also saying, almost like he's speaking on both sides of his mouth, right? And saying at one point, he says, no matter what you do, I will always be faithful to you. I will always be there. I will never give up on you. I will save you. So which is it? This tension actually builds throughout the Old Testament. It's one of the key themes of the Old Testament is this building tension of this question. Is a relationship with God conditional or is it unconditional? And it is only when we come to the life of Jesus and we see Jesus hanging on the cross that that answer is revealed. And the answer is yes. It is both conditional and it is unconditional. Because in his death on the cross, Jesus satisfied all the conditions of the covenant on our behalf so that God could love us and accept us unconditionally. Another one of these tensions is this, this question of how can God be forgiving and yet completely just? Because on the one hand, he says that he will by no means clear the guilty of their sins. He's 100% just. Everyone who sins will get exactly what they deserve for what they've done, no matter how small, even if, they've, even if they sinned unintentionally. And yet in the same breath, he says, but I will forgive people their iniquities and transgressions and sins. Now, how is it that God can be the God of second and third and tenth chances if he will by no means clear the guilty of their sin? Which is it? Is God just or is God forgiving? Again, this tension builds until we finally come to Jesus and we see that the answer is once again, yes, God is both completely just and completely merciful. He forgives sinners. And how can that be? Because Jesus received the judgment that we deserved, and because of that, we can be forgiven. It's because of Jesus that God can eradicate sin without eradicating us. When you see that, this is what Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians 3. When you see the fullness of the beauty of God put on display, the glory, when you see the fullness of the beauty of God put on display in Jesus, the result, Paul says, is that as you behold that, you will be transformed, and you will be transformed into his likeness. Remember what I said in the beginning? We become like what we worship. You will become like what you worship. But here's the deal. As you behold him, as you worship him, as you pursue him, not as an idea, but as a relational being, as a person, you will become more and more like him. And that's good because he's the embodiment of everything that's good and perfect and beautiful and true. Exodus 34 isn't just ground zero for a theology of God. It's also a manifesto for how God's people are to live. As he is compassionate and gracious, we are called to be compassionate and gracious. As he is slow to anger, we are called to be slow to anger. As God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, we are to be also. Let me ask you this. Where has God called you 
to be faithful? Where has God called you to be faithful? Just as God is forgiving, we are called to be forgiving. And so let me ask you again, is there someone in your life whom you need to forgive? But here's the deal. Where do we get the strength to live like that? Right? Because, because look at this. To be this kind of person, to be this kind of person who's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, where, where do we get the ability to live like that? Well, Moses only saw a glimpse of God's glory, but that glimpse had radical impact on him, even if it was only temporary. But in the gospel, as we see the fullness of God's glory on display in what he did for us, as we see it in Jesus displayed, we can look upon his glory with unveiled eyes, his love and his grace, his justice and his mercy in full perfection and no contradiction. And as we look upon him and we consider the gospel again and again, we are, tra- we are changed, we are transformed and made to be more and more like him. So I encourage you in that today that you would seek to know God, not just about God, but seek to know God and that you would let the truth of who he is and what he's done for you sink down into you and impact your life and transform your heart. Amen? Lord Jesus, thank you for what you did for us. Lord, we can never, uh, never say it enough times. We can never praise you enough. And Lord, we thank you that you offer us this relationship with you. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who would say, you know what, maybe that is me. Maybe I am that person who's, who's either grown up with these things or I've learned them and I've, I've enjoyed getting to know things about God, but it's really time for me to take that step and put down my yes and say, yes, I, I'm ready to enter into a relationship with God because that's what it means to be saved and redeemed. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone here today who would say that that's true of themselves, but I pray that you would work in their heart even now as we sing this last song, that they would come to that place and say, yes, Lord, not only do I want to know about you, but I want to know you as my Lord and as my God. Lord, I pray for all of us that these truths of the gospel, of what you have done for us, Lord, that you would let them sink down deep into our hearts, and that as we behold your glory in the face of Jesus, that we would be transformed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.